Well, it's uh, October the 30th, and that means there's just one day left in Pastor Appreciation Month. <laughs> Want to get those cards and letters in there? Uh, you know who came up with that? It was Hallmark. It was. It's a Hallmark thing. That's all it is. Um, I, I do want to say thank you. So many of you have, have just been really, really kind and, and expressed a lot of encouragement to Cheryl and I, uh, specifically over this month. But you know what? It doesn't matter that it's this month. We feel so incredibly loved at this church, my family and I, and so blessed to be with you. And I just, I, I have to throw appreciation back at you and say thank you for being such a loving fellowship and a great group of people to hang out with and to worship with and grow with. Um, I, I've never enjoyed church so much. So, praise God for that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to know you better. That's why we keep showing up. We keep coming back so that we can grow in our relationship with you and, and see you for who you are. And we know, we recognize, we understand, Lord, that that means we enter into a process of change in our lives. As God, as your word says, you are light and in you is no darkness at all. And so for us to know you better, it means that you've got to work the darkness out of our lives. You've got to get the Egypt out of us. You need to work to change us. And Father, I admit, as we've been studying through Leviticus for the last couple or three months, uh, it's... It's challenging. It's hard. There's so much about holiness in here. Every time we open the pages, we come right back to you saying, Be holy, for you are holy. And I struggle with this, Lord, because there's such a a distance between where I am and where holiness is. We all feel that. But, Father, as we open up your word this morning, we just pray that you'll bless us with the truth and that you'll help us to see distinctions here that will help us to grow To walk as more holy. Not, Lord, as pious or self-righteous. That's not our desire at all. But to have you to continue to clean the nooks and crannies out of our lives. To make us more and more like Jesus. More filled with joy. More filled with your righteousness. More covered by your grace. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'll teach us again this morning and speak to us and guide us through your words. And make the book alive to us. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 20. Chapter 20. We have seven chapters left in this book. And it is hard. Trust me, I know. Every time I open this up and I begin to study and, and prepare for Sundays or Wednesday nights, it's tough stuff. And it is demanding. And the Lord is calling His people Israel to be different than the world as He calls you and I to be different than the world. Not to live like the world lives. Last week we talked about the fact that they were drawn out of Egypt and going into Canaan. And God said, don't be like the Egyptians from where you came. And don't be like the Canaanites to where you're going. You be holy because I am holy. And there's a very clear distinction God makes it all through the Scriptures between Himself and the gods that human beings would create. And one of those we've talked about before, we're going to talk about him again this morning, is the king, the, the, the god with a little g, the pagan deity Molech. Molech. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. 
I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. This is a great verse for Halloween. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Verse 7, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Few things were more detestable to God than the worship of the Ammonite deity called Molech. Now Molech in the Hebrew simply means king. And so the Ammonites saw this god Molech as their king. I was talking with some folks last night just about this whole idea that, that naming God some other name... How do I say this? There are a lot of religions out there and a lot of different names for God. And oftentimes Christians will look at the different names for God and go, Oh, well that's just their name for the same God that we worship. No, it's not. It's not. God's names are clear and are specified in the Bible. And for me to say that Allah, for example, is God, just the Muslim version of God, same God but just a different name, is the same for me to say, well, Molech is God to the Ammonites. No, he's not. Now I need to clarify, because I am not into Islam bashing, or let me put it this way, I'm not into Muslim bashing, but Islam's another thing because it's a religion that steals people from the Lord. And it is a pagan religion. I'm not anti the Muslim, the person who happens to be in that religion. As with all people God calls us to love, but someone who chooses to call God other than what he is, to view God in a different way, is not talking about the God of the Bible. In the same way that the people would flee and run to Molech. And they would. Israel will eventually in their history will turn to Molech. Will offer up child sacrifices to Molech. Another name for God? No. A pagan god. A completely different deity. Molech was a five foot tall cast iron idol. Some of you may recall, we've talked about him in the last uh, several months, a couple of different times. He had the body of a man, but he was bullheaded. <laughs> he had the head of a bull sticking out off of his neck. His arms were outstretched to receive his offerings. Now the way this idol, this cast iron idol worked was below his, eye, his arms was a huge belly that was a furnace that they would heat up to intense levels. Belly all the way down to the lap so that when they placed an infant offering on the arms of Molech that were red hot either the child would die sizzling to death on those arms or would roll off the arms into the furnace. Either way, an ugly, horrifying way to die. And while this was going on, so that the mothers who, didn't, who, who offered up their children to Molech, so they didn't have to hear the screams of the children, they would beat drums and play flutes and chant loudly to drown out the screams of these babies. 
Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 31 says, You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And Israel did it. Even after God said, don't be like the Canaanites, don't be like the Ammonites or the Hittites or the Termites or any of the people that you see in the land, don't be like them. You be separate, you be for me. Don't give your children into the arms of Molech. Interesting. You students of the Bible will recognize the location where these awful sacrifices took place. It was called the Valley of Tophet. Tophet meaning drumming, the Valley of Drumming. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 30 says, The sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. The valley of the son of Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. The valley of the sons of Hinnom, or Gehinnom, Gehenna. By the time Jesus would come on the earth, Gehenna was a Jewish word that meant hell. And it was referencing all the way back to the burning in the fire of Molech, later burning garbage dumped in this valley, the valley of fire, hell, Gehenna. So great, so great was the Lord's disdain and literal hatred for Molech worship that the penalty was death by stoning. In fact, Leviticus chapter 20, what it does is details the punishment, capital punishment, for all the violations of the things listed in chapters 18 and 19. 18, 19, and 20, you Bible students may want to know this, those three chapters go together. And God lifts several regulations and ordinances and rules in 18 and 19. He gets to 20 and he reviews them again, this time saying, if you don't follow these, for the most part, it's capital punishment, death by stoning. The Lord hated this idol mullet. Why? Because God hates, and listen to me because it's applicable to you right now. God hates every, everything, everyone that would take his children and cast them into the fire. Did you know that God hates hell? He hates hell. Hell is not the place for you. It's not what he desires for any of his children. He hates it as much as he hated the belly of Molech that would swallow up the children of Israel. He hates hell that would swallow up any of his children who would refuse him, who would reject him. God's hands are outstretched to a world, unfortunately, that is so often in rebellion. He doesn't want hell for this world. John 3.16 tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We've talked several times about the fact that God has not returned yet. Jesus has not come back yet. Why? Because he's still once more saved. He could have come back 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, but he's holding off. Why, Lord? We wait for you. We long for you. Come get us, Jesus. And he says, I want to. But there's one more. And one more after that. There's someone after that. It is the grace of God that is bringing about this patience, this long-suffering, this waiting on the part of the Father. He waits for people to choose him. 
Now you may ask, why would anybody, regardless of the culture, offer their own child on an altar in such a horrible way? How could women line up holding their newborn infants to put them on the arms of Molech only to watch them burn and sizzle and fall into the fire? How could somebody do that? Well, you could call it the Ammonite dream. The Ammonite dream. What they were shooting for, what they were hoping for, it's awfully familiar, awfully similar to a dream we have in our country, the American dream. And as you pursue this dream of prosperity, this dream of pleasure, this dream of the good life, we folks can so easily fall in line with the women offering their children to Molech. What do you mean? Let me show you. Molech offered a couple of things. He offered the promise of pleasure. Give me your offspring, he might say, and I will give you pleasure. I'll give you pleasure in your life. And who doesn't want that? I'll make your life better. I'll give you pleasure. Proverbs 21.17 tells us, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. And he who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Solomon was a wise man. Would you flip in your Bibles to about the middle to the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon had the opportunity, he had the means, he had the way by which to check out pleasure, to try it out. He had everything at his disposal. In fact, historians state that Solomon was likely the richest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. Nobody had more at his, at his beck and call than Solomon did. Nobody had greater resources to try out everything. And so Solomon said to himself, I'm going to test some things. God did a really cool thing with Solomon. He asked for wisdom and God gave it to him. And so Solomon began to apply that mind of wisdom and try things out, test things out. He is for us the human test case for so many different things. And the first is pleasure. He says in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, he says, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it's madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. Now see, that's interesting because most teenagers today when they're checking out and trying out drugs are not thinking wisely. They're being stupid. They're being completely foolish with their bodies. It's ridiculous. And yet sometimes in early youth it's just, well, yeah, but it's cool, it makes it pleasurable. And Solomon says, hey, I tried it. I did the same thing. Except the difference is, I didn't do it stupidly. I did it applying my mind to it. I did it with wisdom. What? You did drugs with wisdom? Yeah. I took drugs. I drank wine. I got drunk. I pursued pleasure so that I could see whether or not it would get me to a good place. And it didn't. It didn't. Read on. He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. It's funny because, well, a lot of times the teenage kids are out doing the drugs. The parents are out building the houses and enlarging the vineyards and seeking their own kinds of pleasure while they're telling their kids, stop using drugs. Yeah, but it's a nice house. Okay, reading on. Verse 5, he says, I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees and I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves. 
Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. So the whole time this is going on, this pleasure pursuit, his wisdom is beside him and he's checking it out and he's thinking it through and he's saying, is this doing what I would hope it would do? Is this providing pleasure? Is this pleasure worth anything for me? He says in verse 10, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all all was vanity. And striving after the wind, he couldn't get his fingers on it. And there was no profit under the sun. If you're wondering if pleasure will get you to the point of of being satisfied in life, Solomon can tell you it won't. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The man who had pleasure, who had enough for everything, discovered one thing. Pleasure for pleasure's sake is bogus. It's a ruse. It's a scam. It's the work of Satan. It's Molech worship. Pleasure never fulfills. Ultimately, it leaves empty. I wonder about some of those moms who dropped off their kids, who headed back to the house. I wonder how pervasive the emptiness began to fill them when even if they had pleasure later in their life, they remembered that they didn't have that child. That the infant wasn't there. I wonder about that mom. I wonder about a lot of moms in our country who would do the same thing. Notice the phrase, by the way, Solomon says again and again and again in this chapter, in these verses. He says, for myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. By contrast, by contrast, and listen to this, God provides something better. Something deeper, something lasting and abiding and fulfilling. What God gives, instead of pleasure, God gives joy. What's the difference, Rick? Joy. Gang, it's internal. It's eternal. It's intrinsic. It's incredible. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You made known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Not pleasures that wane or fade or burn out, but pleasure forever. That's what joy is. Joy lasts. Joy doesn't quit on you. Joy doesn't kick out. It's always there in Christ. Luke chapter 6 verse 20 tells us that Jesus turned his gaze toward his disciples. Is everybody warm enough right now? Let's turn that sucker off because I'm dying up here. (laughs) Jesus turned his gaze toward his disciples in Luke chapter 6 verse 20 and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you, teenagers in junior high and high school. Did you hear that? Blessed are you when people hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name or scorn you as evil for the sake of my name. Man, there's nothing better you can do than to walk into school, have a Jesus t-shirt on and get made fun of. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You have just been blessed. 
Be glad, he says. In that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is talking about something here that's awesome. A pleasure, a joy, a reward that is so great, it's worth everything. Want to know what it is? A reward? Jesus says at the end of Revelation, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. What's the reward, Lord? I want to know, what is the reward? Well, to find out. A lot of times you can learn what something is or explain something in the Bible by going back to the first time it's mentioned. It's called the first mention or the principle of first mention. The first time reward is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. God is speaking with a man named Abram. It's before he changed his name to Abraham. And as he's talking with Abram and he's sharing with him and he's making a covenant with him, he says these words, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. I'm your reward. The reward that Jesus talks about, that the Bible talks about, that God offers, is not some, some thing, some gift that, that can break, some you know, pleasure that will fade or go away. It's Him. It's Him. He says, I'm your reward. You want joy? It's me. You want experiencing eternity? It's me. I am the joy. I am the eternity. And when you walk with me, when you're in relationship with me, that is your joy. And that is your joy eternal. Psalm 43 verse 3 says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. God, you are my joy. God, you are my joy. Now, comparing the joyful reward of the Lord, who the joy is in the Lord, to the bullheaded seduction of Molech, there's no comparison. Moloch said, I'll give you stuff. Give me a pleasure. I'll make it feel good for a night or a week or a month. And sin, hey, look, sin wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't pleasurable. Huh? But sin kills. Oh, you may be in the midst of sinful pleasure right now, and the Lord's saying, okay, but you know what? It's going to wane. It's going to fade. It will kill you. My pleasure, my joy does not. My joy brings you life. So pleasure is not a means to an end. Pleasure is the beginning and the end. It is Jesus as the psalmist cries out. It is God, my exceeding joy. But Molech, going back to, uh, to the book of Leviticus 20, Molech doesn't only offer pleasure, he also offers the premise of prosperity. Something else that people did in Molech and worship, some of you may recall this, is when they would build a house or a business, they would take an infant... This time not placing them on the searing arms of Molech, they would take an infant and place them in a clay pot. They put the clay pots into the walls of the house and drywalled over them and left them there. Again, there would be the chanting, the, the flutes, the, the beating of the drum until the cries were no longer heard. Archaeologists have unearthed these homes and have found clay pots with infant bones in them. This is the worship of Molech. And Molech says, but give me your children and I will give you prosperity. Build that child into the walls of my house and hey, I'll make that that business. I'll make it grow. I'll make it good for you. And again, as the man is working in his shop knowing that his infant is in the wall, how successful can you possibly be? How can you feel good about that? Now you and I might say, I would never offer my firstborn child on the red-hot arms of a god for the sake of my own prosperity. I would never build a baby into a wall for my success. Really. Gang, the spirit of Moloch is alive and well in America today. 
Would you put your firstborn on the back burner for the sake of your career? Do we build our kids into our walls of our homes as silent partners in our family while we busy ourselves with our own success saying, I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it for my kids. If I may be so bold, can I tell you what your kids want? Parents, moms, dads, can I tell you what they want? They want you. They want you. They want time with you. They want relationship with you. They want to hang out with you. They want you. Right, Hayden? Right. They want you. They hate when you're gone. And yet we are often gone even when we're home. I am. My kids know it. When I get into Bible study mode, you know, I'm, I'm in my little groove. I'm in the zone there. They stick their head in my office and say, Hey, Dad, can I just ask you? What? 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 Come on, I'm learning how to love here. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Solomon wrote the following. He said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now listen to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 14 says, When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing there to support him. Listen to that. When my riches are lost to an investment and I have a son or a daughter, then there's really nothing there to support them and I don't think we're talking about money. When I have driven after the prosperity that the world calls to me for, when I've gone after success and all of it falls, the stock market crashes or my stocks go out or my investments go bad or I lose my job or suddenly everything's gone, there's nothing there for my kids. What, money? No. Relationship. Because you've spent all your life working on the relationship with success. And it's Molech worship. And it puts our kids in the walls. And it sticks them on the back burner. And they're waiting for a relationship with us. Gang, there's a prosperity worth pursuing. One that will not only affect the richness of your life, but will also support your sons and daughters eternally. Jesus says, and listen closely, Mark chapter 10, verse 14, He says, Permit the children to come to Me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Mark chapter 10, verse 14, in the King James Version, puts it this way, and it's interesting, Suffer little children to come unto Me. Suffer little children to come unto me. And Moloch would say the same thing. Suffer the little children to come to me. Where they will suffer. And Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me. Allow them to come. Don't keep them from coming. Moloch's arms were outstretched to receive the children. Jesus' arms are also outstretched to receive the children. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. And I say, well, Lord, what's the best way for me to do that? How can I go about this? How do I lead the children to Egypt? And listen closely, the answer will change you whether you happen to have children or not. Because honestly, we're all children needing to be led to the arms of Jesus. 
Leviticus chapter 20 verse 7. Let me read this again. He says, You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Verse 8 he says, You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now I want you to see something. The word sanctify in verse 8 and the word consecrate in verse 7 are the same word. Sanctify, consecrate, it's just two ways of translating the word kadash. Kadash in the Hebrew. Very close to the word for holiness, kadosh. In the Hebrew, kadash, you shall sanctify, consecrate yourself. And he says, I am the Lord who sanctifies, who consecrates you. And it sets up an interesting kind of divine tension. Let's see if I can explain it. Charles and John Wesley... At the time of the Reformation, these two brothers, they were so convinced that a man could achieve sanctification that they developed a method, a biblical method by which to do it. So they began to call these brothers and their followers Methodists. That's where the Methodist church came from. Them saying there's a way that we can be sanctified. And the Lord says it. Look at verse 7. You shall sanctify, consecrate yourselves, and be holy for I am the Lord your God. So John Wesley would say, Charles Wesley would say, there's a method for this. And we developed it and we used scripture to do it. And they were wonderful godly men. But there were other wonderful godly men who completely disagreed. John Calvin was one who, who vehemently disagreed. He believed that only the Lord could sanctify a person. A person cannot sanctify themselves. And this disagreement remains in the church today. There are those who would say, Sanctify yourself. Work at it. Get it down. Get clean. Get holy. You can do this. God, God says, Be holy for I am holy. Okay, okay, we'll start to do it. And, and we go down that Methodist road. And I'm not talking about the denomination, but we begin to develop in our minds methods, ways that we can be holy. And then there are others who say, No, you can't. <laughs> you can't do it. You don't have a chance. Only God will do it for you. And, and so on the far right extreme, they sit there and wait for God to do it. And so the answer, which is it? Which one is it? Watch this, because again, there's a wonderful divine tension at play here. The first thing, and I'm going to get two things that will be done this morning. The first thing to note is that sanctification is applied to life. It's applied. It's practical. It is a doable thing. You're saying I can become sanctified on my own? No, but I'm saying you can work at it. And working at it is a good thing. Seeking holiness, desiring to be like God. God says, you shall consecrate yourselves, be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. Practice them? Yeah. Practice being holy. Practice doing the right thing. But I don't always do the right thing, so practice. Now, I caution you, practice will not make perfect. But you can still practice sanctification. Let me show you something else. First Peter chapter four. I'll just read this to you if you want to flip over there you can. But first Peter chapter four, Peter writes something fascinating to me. He says in verse twelve, and he's talking about this process of sanctification, this practicing holiness, and he says the following Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Make sure that no one, that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And right as soon as you think you're off the list, he says, or a troublesome meddler. <laughs> Oops. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. The word Christian, by the way, is only used three times in the New Testament, and this is one of the three. If you suffer as a Christian, you're not to be ashamed, but you're to glorify God in His name. And he says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In doing. Practice. Practice holiness. Practice sanctification. Peter says to the point that you are persecuted for it. That people see that you are trying to do the right thing. That you want to live a holy life. And as you're pursuing holiness, you're going to come under fire. Not like the fire of Molech, which just destroys. But the fire of testing. The fire of purification in the Lord, which makes you stronger and better. You're going to come under fire. Now, there's one problem with this verse. A lot of people struggle with it. It's verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And people say, wait a minute. Does my judgment, isn't it taken care of at the cross? Didn't Jesus take judgment for me there? Rick, I've heard you say that before. I've heard you say my judgment day was crucifixion day. That was when my judgment was paid. That Jesus took my judgment for me. Is that the case or not? It's absolutely the case. When you give your life to Christ, you tie in to judgment day, Jesus' judgment day. And you will not face judgment day as the world thinks of it in the future. If you're not sure how that all works, come to the Revelation study. We'll, we'll figure that out together. But why then does it say, why does Peter say it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God? What's the deal here? Peter is expressing a truth. Now there's a little translation problem here in in many Bibles, which can help us understand this better. The word here is not with. Where he says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, the word is not with. The word is from. From. Read it in that context. It is time for judgment to begin from the household of God. And if from us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Peter is saying this. By simply being a Christian, that is practicing sanctification, trying to be holy in your life, just by doing that, you will be for some people the gavel which sentences their lifestyle. Does that make sense? Just by living your Christian life. You keep a Bible on your desk at work. Bam! Judgment. Someone walks by and goes, Ugh. You pray with friends at Applebee's. Boom! Judgment. Someone in the next booth goes, Ugh. I'd rather not go see that movie, guys. It's rated R. Boom! Judgment. I can't go. I've got Bible study tonight. Bam! Judgment. And people around look at the church and look at Christians and what do they call us most often? Judgmental. You're judgmental. I'm not judgmental, I'm just trying to be holy. <laughs> just practicing sanctification. But the very practice of sanctification will render judgment to those around you. It happens. The very life of someone being sanctified stands in judgment of sin. It doesn't mean that you're judgmental. And please don't go down that road. 
Don't stand there looking at other people as you're practicing sanctification and going, you're not practicing like I am, buddy. You don't have this holiness thing down like me. Don't do that. Remember that practice never makes perfect. Because it is by grace that you are saved. Sanctification gain is applied in life. There is application. It is practical in our behavior. However, number two, sanctification is achieved through death. It's achieved through death. At the latter half of verse 8, Leviticus chapter 20, the Lord says these words, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He's just gotten done saying, practice sanctification. But then he says, and don't miss this, but I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You practice sanctification, God says, I will sanctify you. While Molech, the idol king, demanded the high price of child sacrifice, God, the true king, paid the high price of child sacrifice. As Jesus said on the cross, John 19.30, it is finished. The finished, perfect work of Jesus on the cross. He can't add to it. He can't take away from it. He did all that needed to be done. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, by grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Sanctification gain is applied in life practically. But it was achieved through death, the death of a child, the death of Jesus, eternally and perfectly. You practice sanctification in me, the Lord would say, and I will perfect sanctification in you. And by the way, Not only will you be blessed as you practice sanctification and accept the sanctification of the Lord, it will also bless your children. It will bless those around you. So you have a choice. You have pleasure and prosperity in the arms of Molech who will destroy and kill. Or you have sanctification in the outstretched arms of Jesus who wants to give you joy and life. Which do you prefer? Lord... My prayer that we will turn to you and cry out life. As Joshua said to the people, choose this day whom you will serve. As Moses said, I've I've set before you life and death. God, this morning we just say, we recognize, we see. The pleasure, prosperity, success, all the things that are the mentality of the Ammonites and the American dream. Father, we set that aside. And we choose life. Not life that would fool Father, life that is eternal. Father, my heart breaks because I know there are some in here who are choosing pleasure. I know we've got some teenagers in here who are being misled dramatically. And I wish, God, that I could just shake them into reality. I I can't do that, but your word can. Your spirit can. And God, I actually pray that you would become a burden on the hearts of of those, especially among our young people who are struggling with sin and pleasure and pursuing all those things. That it would become heavier and heavier and heavier for them until they can't bear it and have to bow before you. But it's not just our teenagers, Lord. And it's not just our parents. We as children do not want to be sacrificed in the arms of Molech. 
are all the false gods false idols in this world we want to be lifted up to you we want to be caught up Jesus in your arms oh that day when we will be held by you and loved by you I can think of nothing greater so Father draw us that direction that we might love you and live for you that our lives might at least be applied in your direction while you sanctify us if you're not a Christian this morning and you want to give your life to Christ or if you have really slidden back if you find yourself lined up for idol worship and I beg you to come to the Lord this morning to pray these words after me Father I am a sinner and I need your grace and I believe that Jesus is the child the adult the the one who died on the cross for me I believe he gave his life for me I believe he paid the highest price to prove your love and to set me free from sin And I believe He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And I ask, Lord Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? And take complete lordship and control over my life. That I might be your child. In Jesus' name.